0: Right, it's up on the church website. Plus, I sent out an email this afternoon uh, to everybody so that you'd have access to the uh, with a link to the map so that you could you could find your way uh, find your way out there. So that's going to be this Saturday. And usually we get out there between eleven and twelve and start setting everything up, and it goes till two thirty or three. Sometimes people just stayed out there and played volleyball or whatever till till they got tired. So it'll be a it will be a Great day, tremendous day for us to get out and uh, do things. Just remember to bring chairs and to bring bug spray if necessary. Sometimes that's been necessary, sometimes not. And uh, so I think that's it for announcements. Is there something else? Oh, yeah, I know what it is. Uh, In a couple of weeks, I'll be gone on vacation, and I'll be gone for a couple of weeks, and on Tuesday and Thursday night, Uh, Doug Petrovich, Dr. Petrovich, who teaches at a seminary out in Katy called the Biblical Seminary, uh, will be covering on Tuesday and Thursday night. He is a world-class, world-renowned archaeologist. That's his background. That's what he has his Ph.D. in, and he's going to be talking about uh, some different archaeological issues and background studies for the Old Testament and New Testament, and so he's going to be fascinating. He is, uh, He's quite good, and he just got back from a dig this summer working in Shiloh for uh, about three weeks, where the tabernacle was located for 300 years, and so I'm sure he's going to bring out some uh, information uh, related to that. So he will be here on Tuesday, Thursday night for those two weeks uh, that I'm gone, and then Albert will be covering the pulpit those two Sundays that I am gone. So I will be here this Sunday and I will be here the next Sunday because my flight doesn't go out until about 5.30 in the afternoon. So that's not a problem. I'll be gone the first two Sundays in November. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. This is important for us to get our mental attitude together, focus on what we're here for tonight, and that is... Anytime we're studying the Word, that is a form of worship. And whenever we worship, we worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. We are to be in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit as He is the one who is the ener- energizer. He is the one who uh, gives us the uh, power, directs us in our spiritual life, uh, takes the Word of God, and uses it to produce spiritual growth and spiritual maturity in our life. And our topic this evening in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 is related to spiritual growth and sanctification. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord, confess sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your grace to us has provided more than we could ask, think, imagine. It is far beyond anything we ever could hope for in this life. It is so profound and so beyond anything we can grasp that little is really said about it in the Scripture in relation to future things, relation to what it will be like once we get our resurrection body, what it will be like as we go on into the millennial kingdom. But, Father, today we live at a time when we are preparing for that. We're preparing our souls spiritually. We're developing capacity not only for life today, but capacity for life in the future, for our being in your presence, enjoying that. And all that we do in this life impacts the future. In a positive sense, I mean by walking with the Holy Spirit, who is the one who produces spiritual growth in our lives. So, Father, we pray tonight that as we study your word and as we think through the, what the passage says and the implications of the passage, that God the Holy Spirit would use it to challenge each of us in terms of what we need to do if this is true, what we need to do in terms of our own spiritual lives, in terms of the truth of Scripture. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right. Uh, one other announcement that I just saw uncovered up here, uh, just to remember to pray for Jeff Phipps, is he'll be in Brazil, leaving on October 30th and returning on November November 15th. He will be ministering, teaching in three different cities when he goes to Brazil. One other thing about Petrovich, there were there's a documentary series. There's actually two of them. You can watch them, I think, on YouTube. Called Patterns of Evidence, and the second one, I know he was in. I haven't seen the first one. The first one had to do with the Moses controversy, and he was uh, one of the main three archaeologists that was interviewed in that film. So uh, he's got um, a lot to say, and I'm sure you will you will enjoy him. Okay, we're in Second Peter. And the theme in Second Peter is to guard against false teachers, and the primary way to protect against false teachers is to know the truth, as we'll see from a couple of verses later on in chapter two that we'll refer to this evening. There's a great danger for new believers to be caught up in false teaching and to be distracted by things that that are not biblically accurate. It's always a challenge with new believers because they tend to do what the culture does and run on emotion and not on thinking. And so with scripture, we have to learn how to exchange the thinking in our souls today with biblical truth and not be conformed to the world, the zeitgeist, the thinking of the world around us, the culture around us, but be conformed to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's really the background for this whole section. When it talks in this section about uh, back in chapter well in chapter one, verse four, being partakers of the divine nature, and then dealing with and that is what this next section really deals with, its character transformation. And that's what we refer to by, with the term Christ-likeness, being like Christ, not in all of his divine attributes, but in terms of what are usually referred to as the moral attributes, and I prefer to describe them as the spiritual virtues. The word morality is often used by a lot of pastors and a lot of theologians Failing to recognize that unbelievers can be moral as well. So we have to do something to distinguish our vocabulary a little bit. There are some very moral unbelievers. Pharisees would have been considered very moral. moral. And they would have exhibited some uh, moral virtues. But they were not saved. They were not regenerate. They did not have uh, any kind of true biblical understanding on on these things. And the same thing was true in the early church with these false teachers. So we have to distinguish morality from spirituality. So I prefer to to use the term spiritual virtues to make a distinction uh, between those two. So in this section, just to give you a little review, remind you of the starting point here, in verse 3, Peter says, since his divine power, emphasis on God's power, it is God's power that transforms us. It's not our power. We're not pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps to try to be moral enough to say, look, I'm spiritually mature. It is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. He's the one who empowers us We fulfill certain mandates, we obey certain mandates, such as confession of sin, walking by the Spirit, using our volition to apply the Word. That's what walking means. Step-by-step is a conscious procedure, and that describes our our lifestyle. But it is God's power, then, that works internally through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, to transform us. And it's based on the fact that at the time we trust Christ as Saviour, when we are born again, when we are regenerated, that we are given a number of assets. And in Ephesians 1-3, we studied that under the terminology blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And here it says that his divine power has given to us, it's an act of grace, graciously given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness and i take this a lot of commentators you will read will take the life there to refer to eternal life i think of it not just in terms of eternal life but but the all the aspects that relate to our our life here on earth he's given us certainly eternal life he has given us abundant life jesus said i came not to give life but to give it abundantly but the second term Eusebius truly focuses on the spiritual side of it. Now, there are some that try to say this is a Hindiatus, and I've gone through a lot of stuff, and I don't know if anybody's consistent with their definition of a hendiatus, uh, which is one modifies the other. Uh, I think it's two, two separate categories here, which is why he uses two different words. And that this comes through the knowledge of him who called us. We have to know God. Knowledge is a key term. Uh, Here it is epinosis. In other places, it's gnosis. The words overlap. Epinosis actually is a subcategory of epinosis. So if you were going to use circles, it would be a smaller circle inside the large circle of of gnosis. And so uh, that knowledge with epinosis emphasizes a more personal involvement, a more intimate knowledge of God, who called us by His essence, essentially, uh, by His glory and virtue. This word, uh, virtue, is a key word through in Second Peter. It has to do with those uh, moral excellencies we might say of God's character—the virtuous excellencies, the the, uh, the His essence, uh, His righteousness, His justice. Uh, those attributes. God has provided that. So that's the background in those those verses. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But we come to verses 5 through 9 tonight. We won't get through all of this, I don't think, but we'll get through a good bit of it. And I wanted to just read through these verses so we have an understanding of the context of this next section that goes down through verse 9. But also, for this very reason, now, this very reason goes back to the fact that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and that we have, as a result of that, escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and we are, for the purpose that we might be partakers of his divine nature, that is, to demonstrate His uh, those uh, godly virtues In our life. For that reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self control, to self control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And then pay attention to the next two verses. There's the punch. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren, and the term there's borders on being spiritually lazy and ineffective, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins so two sections here the section that deals with those moral or spiritual excellencies those spiritual virtues that are to characterize our life as we grow spiritually and then two statements one that says if they're present then we will not be barren or unfruitful and the other if we're not if it's not present then we're Blind, spiritually blind, and we're ungrateful because we've forgotten that we've been forgiven for our sins. Okay, now let's look at this connection between this, these five verses and the first two verses. The first two verses emphasize what God has given us from His divine power. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, Through the knowledge of him, and it is by which, that is, this knowledge of him and his essence, that he's given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. So the word of God is what's important. We have to know the word of God. We have to know promises. We have to claim those promises. It's more than just knowing doctrine. It is knowing God's Word. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Your doctrinal notebook is not alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the Word that is alive and powerful because it's the truth, not because it's some sort of mystical, magical power, but because it is the truth. It is that which has been revealed to us by God. And it is on the basis of those promises, that is through these, that we can be partakers of the divine nature. Now, once again, that's not some mystical, magical, new age, juju, black magic kind of thing. That's how new agers, that's how mystical Catholics, I don't know if you've noted, because a lot of times we just get isolated. We don't see trends, or you don't see the trends like I see the trends. But starting in the mid 80s, Outside the church, you had the rise of New Age mysticism. Inside the church, you started seeing a movement back to medieval Roman Catholic mysticism. And this has just increased its pace over the last 30 years. And you have churches that have these mazes that are drawn on the floor and you've got to walk the mazes and uh, recite certain things, and that is a spiritual exercise. It's just medieval mysticism. Uh, you have Teresa of Avila, John of Damascus, other, um, other, Henry Nguyen, other Catholic mystics that are very, very popular in a lot of evangelical settings today, and they're just sucking in a lot of false teaching a lot of heresy, a lot of non-biblical ideas, but it makes them feel good. And um, as I keep pointing out recently, God really isn't impressed by our feelings. God is impressed by what we believe and our application of the word. Nowhere in Scripture do you ever have God or Jesus ever talked to any of the prophets, never talked to Moses, Jesus never took any of the disciples aside and asked them, well, how did you feel about that? Well, just tell them, what were the emotions that were going through your head, Peter? He never does that. It's not about our emotions. And I'm not saying that emotions are wrong. God gave us emotions. The positive emotions, which have been described by some in the attempts to distinguish these, have, have, are, are referred to in terms of the intellectual affections, the affections of the mind, distinguished from the sinful, em- uh, sinful emotions, anger, hatred, bitterness, those kinds of things, sexual lust, uh, lust for anything. Those are passions. And that is, The scripture doesn't use those terms. That was later developed in the Middle Ages as theologians were trying to distinguish between the positive and the negative in terms of of emotions. The bodily passions are are, uh, derived from the sin nature. So God's given us everything that we may be partakers. That is, that we may demonstrate the character of God, the character of Christ. And this sets up the transition because what we're told in verses 3 and 4 is that God has given us these things. This is declarative. But in verses 5 through 7, it's imperative. God has given you these things because of this, For this reason, as Peter starts in verse 5, we need to be diligent in applying the Word and applying what He has given us and developing the potential of what He has given us so that we can mature and we can grow. So when we look at verses 3 and 4, that describes what God has given the believer and the purpose for that gift, and that is that we can partake of the divine nature, that is the character of Christ is exhibited in our lives. Verses 5-7 through seven, then describe the obligation on us because we have been given such a glorious gift that we have to exploit it, and that comes by growing spiritually in all of these areas so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, a couple of points on this, as we look at this section, verses 5 through 7 are a sentence. Those verses are a sentence in the, in the Greek. And the main verb tells us the main idea that we are to add to our faith. And we're going to see that it doesn't say that. It is that by means of our faith, so that's foundational, by means of our faith we are to add virtue and then to virtue, knowledge, etc., as we go through these uh, different uh, spiritual virtues. By applying diligence, it's an interesting setup there in terms of the way the Greek is structured. We are to give all diligence. This is to be our priority. This is what we sh- should be thinking about when we wake up in the morning and all throughout the day it should be running around in the back of our minds as we're doing, carrying out our responsibilities in life, that we are to be diligent and set aside time to be diligent in reading the Word. Wednesday, I should be finished with my chronological read through the, new, the Bible from this last year. So I got ahead. So I'm going to go read some other stuff, try to read through Isaiah about 10 times between now and the end of the year. I keep threatening to do that. It's huge, but we need to I need to get that under control and teach it. So, we need to be diligent to add these spiritual virtues to our to our spiritual life. Then we notice that in verse 8, verse 8 begins with the word for. Most of the time when you see the English word for, it translates a Greek word that indicates this is an explanation for what was said before. In other words, it's answering the question, well, why do we really need to add these things, these spiritual qualities to our life? Four, if they're yours, you won't be barren, you won't be lazy, you won't be unfruitful. And then the next verse also starts with a four. It's a contrast for he who lacks these things is short-sighted, spiritually blind, and forgotten that uh, he was cleansed from his old sins. So this sets up the pattern of this, of this uh, passage. And when it comes down here to the very end, he who lacks these things has forgotten. That's the main idea. So we want to start off with verse 5. It starts with the phrase but also for this very reason. Now what is the reason? This takes us back to verse 4, takes us back to actually the content of that that sentence that preceded this verses 3 and 4 for that reason that we have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness that we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So what does that mean, to be partakers of the divine nature? What does it mean to be partakers of the divine nature? This is an odd word in the the Greek. It is a word that you would expect to be found in, uh, in a Stoic Writer Stoicism was one of the popular philosophies of that particular time, and we often think of Stoicism as not uh, not going through suffering. Not uh, they are the ones who would endure suffering in silence. This is sort of a caricature of it, but it was a complex uh, philosophy at the time, and this was a major term that was associated with. Stoicism uh, but this is not what Christianity is talking about. It's not talking about the divine nature in that sense. What this reveals though is interesting. It reveals that Peter is a good communicator. It reveals that Peter has a has his finger on the pulse of pagan Greek culture. He knows how to talk to the pagans in language they understand. And that not that the recipients are pagans, but that the false teachers are. So he uses some of this vocabulary that was popular among the false teachers in order to correct it and put it within the correct framework and biblical framework. That it's not the Stoic idea of entering into deity, but it is a biblical idea of exhibiting the qualities and the characteristics of Christ. So he uses a lot of language in Second Peter that was uh, that was common at that time. He knew how people talked. He knew what they were talking about. He knew how the language was used. And so he used language that was popular in order to get their attention, but he didn't use it in the same way that they uh, that they use it used it. So he invested with distinctively um, Christian meaning. So by using the idea of partaking, he really means we participate in certain attributes of the character of God and that these attributes are then displayed in our life. We not only have this passage but a similar passage with a different list None, neither of these passages are to be understood as exhaustive and that is Galatians 5.22 and following which is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. We'll connect the dots to that at some point. So this is reflective of the idea that's in Romans 8.29 where Paul wrote, for whom he knew beforehand, that is, his foreknowledge before time began, uh, he knew that there what his plan was and he knew those who believed in Christ would be entered into the body of Christ and that those in the body of Christ were foreordained. They had a destiny. They had a purpose. And that purpose was was to be conformed to the image of his son, so it is talking about spiritual characteristics, spiritual qualities, so that we can be christlike and be a testimony of who Jesus Christ is. The next phrase in verse four is that is the phrase having escaped now this is a participle. The purpose of having the promises is that through them we can participate in the divine nature. You might say, why? Because we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Both the previous verb and this participle are in the aorist tense. Aorist participles usually precede the action of the main verb. So you can be partakers because something happened before, and that is that you escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now this word, "apofoigo," which is the word meaning to escape or to run away, escape's a good term. We have truly escaped a horrific destiny. It's used that way in 2 Peter 2.18 and 2.20, to refer to those who have escaped spiritual death. They've escaped, escaped the penalty for sin. So here I take it that having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust is another way of talking about being regenerated. It's a way of talking about being justified, receiving the imputation of Christ's righteousness when we are saved, so that we are no longer spiritually dead. So in 2 Peter 2.18, Peter is talking about the false teachers and the fact that there are, there are immature believers or brand new Christians who can be easily seduced and led astray by the fake theology and the fake doctrine and the fake teaching of these false teachers. That's the meaning of the word they, the pronoun they refers to the false teachers, for when they, the false teachers, speak great swelling words of emptiness, they're filled with all the rhetorical flourishes of the that was taught in in rhetoric and uh, oral discourse in Rome. They spoke well. They were spellbinding. They had great vocabulary. They used tremendous uh, images in their speaking, and they were they would use humor. And we have the same thing today. We have people who and and quote pastors, fake pastors, fake teachers who are spellbinding for a lot of people. They just love their personalities. It's not about the personality of the man in the pulpit. It's about the content of the teaching. And so when they speak great swelling words of emptiness. That's what a great term to describe. Oh, you know who we have here in Houston and around the country, there are so many who speak swelling words of emptiness. They allure through the lust of the flesh. Now, a lot of times when we think of lust of the flesh, we think of sexual lust, and that indeed is a and has been a tremendous problem. One of the things that swept through what was called the healing revivals of the late 40s and 50s, which was actually declared heresy by the standard Uh, Pentecostal Pentecostal denominations at the time the Assembly of God, uh, Pentecostal Church in America heard this word of faith movement that just dominates today and they declared it a heresy. That's why so many of those teachers and pastors and television and radio evangelists left the charismatic denominations and they started indep- their own independent churches. They were de- basically their teaching was declared heresy, and they were kicked out. So they started independent churches. And those who went to those independent churches that weren't associated with a Pentecostal denomination stole a very good word, and they said they go to a non-denominational church up until the 50s and 60s, and maybe today because you don't know all these nuances, many people will describe an independent Bible church as a non-denominational church. But that phrase, non-denominational, to many people, means a wacko, charismatic, crazy health and wealth, name it and claim it kind of megachurch. It's not referring to a Bible church. And so that term term was lost. And they preached a gospel of materialism, that if you give to God, God will restore to you tenfold. And there have been so many Christians who have been shipwrecked along the way because they would empty their 401K plans and give everything to the church, and the church in return gave them nothing And because it was a fake interpretation of the promise of God uh, blessing us when we give those people were just left destitute and in some of these churches they go so far as to have the individuals bring them their paycheck and they tell them how much they will give to the church and how much they will have left over to live on it's a horrible horrible thing and it's just a spiritual tyranny but you don't hear a lot about that on many of these many of these uh, evangelistic shows our television evangelists. So they allure through the lust of the flesh, come be a Christian, God will bless you and you will have millions of dollars. He'll give you everything your heart desires. Uh, so it, and through lewdness, and there's also a lot of sexual uh, problems. This was what uh, was devastating in the early years of the uh, healing movements, the, the, the tent revivals, and the healing movements in the late '40s and early '50s. Is a lot of those men uh, were guilty of some incredible. I mean, I just can't imagine how any anybody who's a pastor or any man can have the chutzpah to do the things that they did and get away with it. It's, it's just phenomenal. And there were, you know, of course this came out to some degree in the late 80s when you saw uh, Jimmy Swaggart weeping from his pulpit about what he was caught doing and the bakers and others uh, that were uh, found out. But it's just, just a horrible thing. They, they, they were appealing to everybody's sin nature including their own. So, the, the, that what it says here, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Those who escaped from them are those who became believers, but because they were not grounded in the word yet, they were deceived by these false teachers and sucked back into these, these movements. 2 Peter 2.20 says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Obviously, that's indicating that they have trusted in Christ as their Savior. And so having escaped the pollutions of the world is a reference to their salvation. They have become regenerated. They have become justified. They are again entangled in them and overcome, and the latter end is worse for them than the beginning now we'll have some fun when we get to that passage because of the verses after it tell you some funny stories that you will you will enjoy. Jude talks about these in Jude 12 to 13 because there are many parallels between Jude and 2 Peter referring to these false teachers and their false doctrine. These are spots in your love feast, that when they come together in communion, these are uh, blemishes on their coming together to worship at the Lord's table because of the false teaching that's there. They serve only themselves. Then he compares them. They're clouds without water. They don't produce anything. They're cl- they just look good, sound good, but they don't produce anything of value. Clouds without water, trees without fruit, pulled up by the roots, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, all of this is talking about the fact that there is such a thing as spiritual death and that we have to be saved from that. We talked about this Sunday morning. We'll talk about it some more. The corruption that is in the world through lust refers to spiritual death. That's how the corruption entered into the world was through Adam's sin in Genesis 3. It wasn't Eve's sin because she wasn't designated the head of the race. God created the male first. He created the woman, not independently, but from his side, showing that there is an organic unity of male and female. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God created male and female in his image, both in his image, and they sinned. When they sinned, they they didn't die physically, they were alienated from God. And on Sunday morning, I talked about this in Ephesians two one that the phrase dead in your trespasses and sins means that you are spiritually dead. Colossians changes the language a little bit, and instead of using the term sin, says dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, the reason Paul changes to that terminology is because circumcision was an issue in Colossae because of the influence of the Judaizers, saying that they needed to be circumcised in order to be either saved or or sanctified. So he changed it. But what he means by uncircumcision of your flesh is the symbolic meaning of uncircumcision with spiritual death, so or, or sin. So that's the that's the parallel there. Then in Ephesians four eighteen, as I showed on Sunday morning. Being dead in your trespasses and sins is being alienated or separated from the life of God. doesn't mean you're dead like a corpse and you can't do anything. That's the Calvinist view. Spiritual dead means you can't hear the gospel, believe the gospel, you can't exercise positive volition, you can't do anything because dead people can't do anything. But that's not how Paul defines spiritual death. It's a- alienated from the life of God. That's why Jesus came to offer life and life abundantly, is because they were spiritually separated from the source of life, and the only way to reconnect with the source of life was to believe in Jesus as the, as the Messiah. 1 John 2.16 describes this corruption of the world through lust. With three phrases, the lust of the flesh, and that would refer to sensual sins, the lust of the eyes, it is through the eyes that we see things and we want things. This is exhibited in Genesis 3, 6, when Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, arrogance. So she looked at it, saw it was a pleasant to the eyes, and second, that it was a tree desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And so this is when that corruption entered the world through lust, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. So Peter says in verse 5 but for this reason, that is, because we have escaped. The corruption of the world through lust. We have been regenerated. We have been justified. We have new life. And with that new life, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, life, physical life, and the spiritual life through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue so that we can be uh, partakers or participants in the divine nature, not letting him live through us in some sort of metaphysical New Age mysticism, but that the character of Christ becomes exhibited through us. So how do we do that? That's what comes up. Peter says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. So I'm going to start with the main verb here. And we're going to go through this and just hit a couple of points. This is, this is important. Some of you have heard some confused things about this. I want to try to straighten that out a little bit. The f- main verb here at, in this, this sentence that goes from verse 5 down to verse 7 is epikoregeo. It is an aorist active imperative. Now, basically what that means tells you it's a command. An aorist imperative means it's a high priority. It is like a drill sergeant barking an order: "Do it now!" This is prime importance. A present imperative is along the lines of "This should be characteristic of your life all the time." Aorist imperative is "Do it now." So, the verb "epi cora, geo. "Epi" is a prefix. The v- main part of the word is also a verb "korgeto." from the root core. I don't know that anybody here is going to guess what that refers to in our English language. That is related to our English word chorus. The Greek drama, the Greek plays would often have a chorus in the Greek plays and uh, in the Greek culture, in classical Greek times, going back to the 5th, 6th century B.C., which is 500, 600 years before Jesus, remember that language changes a lot. Just think 500 years ago, you know, it was 1500s. They were just beginning to translate the Bible significantly into English. 400 years ago, they translated the King James Version, and they said, and they used the word charity to translate agape. Charity has changed its meaning quite a bit since 1611. Language morphs, and so we have to be aware of that. The word epikorigeo had a meaning in the 5th century B.C., and that was related to the fact that the... uh, director of the chorus not only coached them and directed them more in the sense of how we uh, would think of a director of movies or tv or plays today but he was responsible for paying the expenses of all the members who were uh, who were participating in the chorus so he was the benefactor for those who were in the chorus and so he provided financial support and helped them along the way as well, so he had a, a financial stake in what they were doing. Now, that's 500 years before Jesus. But the word had as its basic meaning the idea of adding something to something. He added to their lives with what he, um, what he gave them. He supplemented their income from his income. This is not the idea. So the word came to mean to add to something, to supply something in addition to, or to supplement something. Okay, it doesn't have anything to do with the chorus anymore. But it's funny, I have run into several people who commit what is known as a... uh, as an etymological fallacy. Etymology is the study of the history of the word. So what they'll do is they'll go back and they'll look at the makeup of the word. They'll look at the components of this word, epi means one thing, corg, that means something else, you put them together, and you, uh, and the meaning is the sum of the parts. But we know that words, compound words, do not derive their meaning from etymology. And there are some pastors I have heard because they do not know the language as well as they think they do, have committed this etym- etymological fallacy because it supports whatever it is they want to teach. Let me give you an example the word butterfly. Does it have anything to do with butter? Does it have anything to do with flies? It doesn't even have anything to do with flying butter. <laughs> all right? So butterfly means something completely different than the sum of its parts. Another example is a pineapple. has nothing to do with apples growing on pine trees. Something completely different. The meaning of the compound word has nothing to do with its history or the the history of the etymology at all. It is used in a totally different sense. Now I want to give you a quote. Uh, One of the uh, more interesting books I read, and I really hadn't read it in a long time, but it's foundational for anybody who's studying Greek and uh, aspires to be an exegete, is to read a book called Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson, who was a Greek professor for many, many years at Trinity uh, seminary up up in Chicago. I don't agree with everything he has to say in this book, but he points out basic fallacies. And I thought this one was interested. You may or may not recognize some names here, depending on how much Bible study you've done or been exposed to, but we have a lot of pastors who listen, and they use rudimentary terms, and they need to hear something like this. So he gives this what he calls a fascinating example from uh, J.P. Lowe. Lowe, Nida, have a semantic dictionary for Greek out there that's on Logos and almost every computer program, and so a lot of guys use that. And he took this example from 1 Corinthians 4.1, where Paul writes concerning his ministry and those associated with him. He talks about uh, Peter and Apollos and other leaders in these terms. And the verse reads... So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, he exposes some real etymological fallacies here, which I've heard sermons on this, and I just, I mean, the first time I read it, I I just howled because there's so many people who read some of these uh, Greek source tools And they come out and they don't do their homework well enough and, boy, do they blow it. And this is just a classic example. Um, Carson writes, More than a century ago, R.C. Trench, he wrote a famous book, it's very useful, called Synonyms in the Greek Language. R.C. Trench popularized the view that huperetes, that's the word that's translated servants, that the word huperetes, Etes. now that's a compound word. He popularized the view that huperetes derives from the verb hereso, to row, okay? He said it has to comes from a root that means to row. The basic meaning, he says, of huperetes then is a rower. Trench quite explicitly says a huperetes was originally the rower, and then two great Greek scholars, A.T. Robertson, early 20th century Greek scholar. It's got a volume this big on uh, Greek grammar that is a textbook for advanced Greek grammar for Chafer Seminary and almost every good, decent Greek course in America. A.T. Robertson and J.B. Hoffman went further and said that "hooperates" derives morphologically from hupa, the preposition, and heretes. Now, haresso means rower in Homer, 8th century BC, and Hoffman draws the explicit connection with the morphology, concluding a huperates was basically an under-rower, hoopa meaning under, an under-rower or assistant rower. I've heard sermons just on that. We want to be assistant rowers. <laughs> basically, they're getting it all wrong. Trench had not gone that far. He did not detect in Hupa any notion of subordination. Nevertheless, Leon Morris, now he's a great late 20th century scholar. Leon Morris concluded that a Hupa Rates was a servant of a lowly kind. The point is, a bad idea gets into Greek grammars, then everybody repeats it after that, and they're not doing their homework. And William Barclay, another... uh, theologian commentator from the second half of the 20th century. Barclay plunged further and designated huperetes as a rower on the lower bank of a trireme. Yet the fact remains, Carson says, that with only one possible exception, and it is merely possible, not certain, huperetes is never used for a rower in classical literature, and it is certainly not used that way in the New Testament. Sort of that... Law of spandex that I said the other night just because it might mean something, just because you could wear something, doesn't mean you should wear something. Just because it might mean something, doesn't mean it does. The huperetes in the New Testament is a servant. That's just what the word means by its usage in New Testament times. So it is little, if anything, he says, to distinguish a huperetes from a diakonos, a servant. As Lowe remarks, to derive the meaning hooparetes from hoopa and aretes is no more intrinsically realistic than deriving the meaning of butterfly from butter and fly. Okay? reason I say that is because some of you have heard some pastors wax eloquently about the chorus, the Greek chorus, and understanding that. And the Greek chorus produces a symphony of these various virtues, that's just hogwash. That's etymological heresy by men who do not know how to do word studies or how to work their way through the Greek language, and they are just repeating something they heard someone teach who missed the boat because they were in love with classical Greek instead of Koine Greek. Okay, so all it means is that you supply something, and what Peter is saying here is that God has given us the potential. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's what he's done. Now, what we're to do is add to that the virtues that come from spiritual growth. So we are to add. And the next word I want to look at comes actually before that. That's the word giving. It's a Greek participle to exert or to bring something in. So for this very reason, he uses the word exerting. That means putting forth effort. This becomes a focal point of our life. And then the noun that comes after that is spude. The verb is spudazo. Study to show yourself approved unto God. I know nobody here ever heard that verse before. The word isn't stu- study is what's inferred by the context, but the literal meaning of spudazo is to be diligent in the word. Okay, so what we have here is, for this very reason, exert yourself in all dil- diligence, and then we don't have add to your faith yet. Then we have the full phrase in the Greek is ente. Piste humon. The humon is you. It mean, literally, it's by means of your faith. It's a preposition in plus the instrumental, meaning by means of your faith, add or supply or supplement to what God has given you. Add to it these spiritual virtues and starts with the phrase virtue. This idea of supplying something using the same verb, corgeo. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? See, we hear the word of God and we believe it. So, the foundation is what we see is faith by means of your faith. Doesn't use that language for any of the other virtues that are listed. By means of your faith. So, that's foundational. All of these other qualities and characteristics are supplied by means of faith. So, by means of faith, first virtue. Now, a th- comment on what's going on here, because when we read it, what he says is by means of vir- add to f- add by means of faith virtue to virtue knowledge to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. See, it's like you're climbing a staircase. And this is called a sorites. It is a way of writing a figure of speech to present a list of things a certain way. It's a literary device in this quote. It's a literary device fashionable during the period called a cerite, or climax, or ladder, or gradatio gradation. So this is something that you can take home and teach your kids. So we add by means of your faith. Add virtue. Virtue means spiritual excellence. Now, what you'll usually see in dictionaries is moral excellence, but Pharisees had moral excellence. So excellence. So we're going to change it to just spiritual excellence. We're pursuing excellence. That's what we need to do in in life is to pursue excellence. So we pursue excellence, we pursue perfection in the hopes that we will do something great. We know we'll never achieve perfection. We may not achieve excellence, but if we pursue it, we will at least do well. This word virtue, arete, that's why camp arete is called camp arete, to encourage the kids to pursue spiritual excellence, is used in two other passages in the Scripture in the New Testament. Philippians four eight. whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever thing whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, virtue sort of summarizes any of these things. If there's any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The King James was think on these things. Think about, it. think that way. Exclude anything from your thoughts that doesn't fit into those categories. And then Peter uses it in first Peter two. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim, and literally it's the virtue, the spiritual excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we by means of faith we add virtue, spiritual excellence. To that spiritual excellence, we add knowledge. Knowledge is the Greek word gnosis. We are to grow by the grace and knowledge gnosis of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to have data. We have to have facts. We have to know who he is. It doesn't stop there, but that's the starting point. It moves from gnosis to a more intimate knowledge of epinosis. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in contrast, that's true knowledge in contrast to the false knowledge that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6.20, where Paul warns Timothy, Guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So there's fake knowledge, and there's biblical knowledge. The next is self-control. To knowledge, add self-control. This is a fruit of the Spirit. It means self-mastery. It means to be able to control your passions, control your lust, control your sin nature uh, by walking by the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.23, gentleness and self-control, self-mastery. Acts. It's interesting in Acts 24, Paul is talking before the governor, Felix, and he's not only talking to him about righteousness, that is, how to become righteous, but he's also talking to him about self-control and the judgment to come. So he's covering a lot of bases when he was witnessing to Felix. So to knowledge, self-mastery, self-control, to self-control... We had perseverance, hupomone, a word that is familiar to any of you that have been listening to me long. It's endurance. It's sticking with the spiritual life, sticking with Bible study, sticking with coming to Bible class, no matter what, sticking with your spiritual growth, when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, when you have time, when you don't have time, when you're overloaded, when you're not overloaded, it's not letting the cares of the world choke out the spiritual life that you have. And Paul says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. You don't get perseverance if you don't go through difficult times. And perseverance, character. See, that's what Peter's talking about, is the development of Christ-like character. You learn endurance, and that produces character, and character produces a confident expectation. James uses the word a lot, James 1, 3, and 4, because we know that the testing of our faith, that is the tribulations of Romans 5, 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, hupomone. And endurance will have its perfect or mature, maturing work that you may be complete and sufficient, lacking Nothing. Then the last word, it should be godliness at the end. So to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, that is spiritual maturity, a devotion to God, a devotion to the spiritual life. And then he says from spiritual maturity, brotherly kindness, this is Philadelphia, which means it's a compound word, from philos, meaning love, one form of love, not agape. Philos, which usually has to do with a more intimate love, a love where you know the other person. And adel- adelphos, which is the word for a brother. So it's loving someone like a brother, brotherly kindness, brotherly love. And ag- agape which is God's love, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only unique son. God demonstrates his agape love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is what Jesus is talking about in John thirteen thirty four. So it begins at the bottom with faith, by means of faith, add virtue, and to virtue, add knowledge. And then you have all these other characteristics. They're not really in a logical order. They're not really stair-stepped, but they're described that way. And then at the top, you have agape. That is a mark of a spiritually mature believer. And so Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love, agape love, for one another. These are spiritual qualities. Now, what we need to do next time we'll do it is come back and look at uh, Galatians five sixteen and following where we deal with the walking by the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, just review some on that. And then we'll come back to the next two verses. If these are ours and we abound in this, if this character is being developed in us then you will not be barren. And the word there for barren has to do with being spiritually lazy and nonproductive and just not going anywhere in your spiritual life and unfruitful. We have to talk about what fruit is. Most people think fruit has something to do with evangelism. But the qualities listed in Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the spirit have nothing to do with evangelism. Fruit in the Bible has to do with the internal transformation of our character into the character of Christ. And then the contrast is the, the believer who lacks these things has reversed course and he's gone backward. He's become spiritually blind, short-sighted, and he's ungrateful. He's forgotten that he was cleansed from his sin. So we'll come back to that next time with our heads bound father thank you for this opportunity to study these things may we be, may we be encouraged strengthened to push forward to be diligent to add to what you have given us from what is our responsibility to pursue the word make it a passion make it a focus to live for you and not for ourselves to realize we're saved for a purpose and that is to serve you and that we do that by growing to spiritual maturity. You'll bring us the opportunities to serve us if we are pushing forward, growing and maturing in our spiritual life. Challenge us, please, in this area in Christ's name. Amen.